You're listening to the Flying Goat Farm Podcast with your host, Lisa Check. This podcast is for people who love yarn and fiber and sheep, who love to knit and crochet and maybe even felt. We will be talking about the crossroads between keeping sheep and goats, making yarn, and expressing your colorful self. Computer? Okay. Okay, so we're recording. So hi, everybody. This is Lisa from Flying Goat Farm, and we're here on a podcast talking with Emily Shamlin. Yay! Hey. Who can't see us, who are just listening to the podcast. We're on a Zoom call. Um, If you would like to see us in person, you can always um, tune into the the YouTube channel, and we'll have it up as a video, too. So, Emily, I have known you, I think, for 15 years. It's been a while. (laughs) And I think that that was probably, was that kind of when you were first starting out shearing, or... I, I seriously think you were one of my first goat clients. You were right there, Peggy Keeney. I think Peggy allowed me to shear her goats, God bless her soul. And you were like right behind her. So yeah, you, you were right there at the beginning. Well, and, because, and Peggy's the one that turned me on to you because just as an aside, so Bill and I had taken that lovely sheep shearing class and the whole class I kept saying, but we have goats. So how do goats... <laughs> With the guys that were teaching there were just like, well, I hear they make good eating and they make good pelts. And so it wasn't very helpful. And that first day, I think I got through just the half of it. I got the first two positions, but the one that goes up the neck, I couldn't do it. Yeah. Over from that one. So that night I got home and I emailed everybody that was um, on that Eastern Angora goat breeders that was in our area and said who shears for you and that's how I found you so it was Peggy that that um told me about you yeah and that and that was the early one so I was just kind of figuring out how to shear goats at that point so and it's it's all been downhill from there (laughs) you would never know you were you were so professional even then and how old how old were you well, I would have been like right out of high school, right out of college, somewhere in that vicinity. So like um, 19-ish? Yeah, 20-ish. Because I don't know if Lydia, Lydia hadn't come around at that point. I don't know because you, um, I don't, I don't recall you being pregnant. Yeah, and- a lot of people have memories of her in a car seat. <laughs> their farms. I, I think I was shearing goats before she was around. So yeah. I, yeah. I have those memories of Lydia. I rem- remember playing with her um, while you were shearing because it took me a long time to just even be in the room with you while you were I know. Um, Now I can do it, but don't make me do the shearing. That's why I appreciate you so much. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so I, I've heard the story a little bit, but would you tell us how you got into like the whole sheep thing because your parents were goat and dairy people yes I grew up on a dairy farm Um, my parents milked about 60 head of cows growing up but my mother loves her dairy goats like that was always her her personal passion project however you want to put it so that's what we did in 4-H and for those of you who don't know 4-H it's sort of a youth organization they you know typically it revolves around your local county fair um 
but it also has other, you know, project avenues in it. You can do pretty much anything in 4-H, but we showed our dairy goats at our local county fair. And then I jokingly say that my uh, teenage rebellion was that I decided no more goats. I wanted to do sheep. So we ended up with a few sheep and there was a lot of begging involved to get the sheep onto the farm, but I've just always been drawn to them. I had to have some sheep. So once the sheep were there, somebody had to shear them. And everybody has the story of trying to hack the wool off of their first sheep that first year. And it's always horrible. And it was the same for me. And I decided that if I was going to do it, I was going to learn how to do it right. So this would have been about, I was 16 or 17 at the time. And I figured out that Maryland had a shearing school and I signed up and I was told I probably wouldn't be very successful. My parents talked to David Green, um, trying to sort of feel out if I was allowed since I was so young. And he was like, well, she's going to be, you know, you know, weaker. It's going to be harder for her. But I persevered. And actually, since I was already used to clipping the goats for the, the show, um, I was used to using the equipment that we used at the shearing school. So I actually did fairly well. And at the end of that school, and granted, keep in mind, it's a two-day thing. You know, don't, don't assume this is months long. Right. Two days. They teach you enough to be dangerous and uh at the end of that, Dave said, hey, do you want to shear for some of the neighbors? I said, sure, you know, I'll uh, keep practicing. So, and I was lucky I have a, a great uncle who also had sheep and his shear didn't like coming out anymore. And uh, so he asked if I would do his flock and he, he had an, a lot. Um, I think at that point it was right around a hundred. Oh, so wow. it would take, yeah, it would take several days, but he said, I don't care what they look like. I want the faces and the butts clean. Like that was his priority. He was a meat guy and he had, he had a fairly good setup. Um, and I just, you know, personal pride. I wasn't going to quit until they were done. So I would like cry my way through it the first couple of years. And I would dread Jerry calling. Jerry was going to call and I was like, no, <laughs> it's going to hurt. But, um, honestly, that's how you get into it. You got to have a, a job that you just slave through and it hurts and everything hurts and everything's screaming and you figure out how your gear cuts and you have enough animals to really kind of work through those, those first kinks. It, it's really hard learning if you only have, you know, five sheep of your own. Right. Cause you just, you just don't have enough variety there to kind of work through some of those gear issues and technique issues that you run into. But I did that. And then you know, went to college, did some things, sheared my way, still came at home and sheared. Um, and then I had my daughter, Lydia, I was uh, 22 at the time. And then I was working. And then that was right around the, the recession, that first recession there in the early 20s. And uh, the company I was working for had a buyout program. And so I took it and I said, I was going to shear full time. So I've been shearing full time ever since. Wow. And what, what was your first goat experience? Cause they are not the same. They're all wrinkly and everything. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause I, I help teach at that Maryland school now. And Dave Green always joked there in the, the earlier years, he said, goats have ruined your technique. Oh, and uh, <laughs> cause it, it is a different, they just move. They're more fluid than a sheep is. Sheep are kind of stiff. Um, oh, okay. I'm I'm trying to think, I think there was a lady, um, that was over, uh, where was she over behind Manchester that had like, she had like five or six sheep and I think she had a goat. I think that was the first goat I ever ran into. And you know, when you're learning, the worst part of learning is that you never know whether it's you or the animal. 
Because right. you don't have enough experience to really say, hey, this is a gear issue or, you know, this animal is just not healthy and might not be shearing correctly. So, you know, the first couple times you do goats, you think it's you, but it's the goat. I mean, they're, they're drier. They move weird. So, I mean, it does. And it's harder to find enough goats to really get the practice to really be able to nail them out. Like some of those guys in Texas can do like 150 in a day. I will never get there. Wow. I still don't know how they do it. Um, horns and everything like that. Yeah. I, mean, I think I've timed you. You can, do, you can do a sheep in about like, I want to say four minutes maybe. Yeah. And yeah. Those are probably more like eight or nine, something like that. You think about that? It's double. Yeah, it is. And I, you feel like, even when you get a good one, you feel like you're rocking through them and then you kind of look at your watch after you're done. like, Oh my. <laughs> How did this take so long? Yeah. yeah. Well, I know now that you have a whole bunch of sheep of your own. So what kind of flock do you have and how did you make that decision? So I have border cheviots and they are a shearer's dream because there is not a speck of wool anywhere where it doesn't belong, meaning no wool on the head. There's no wool on the belly. There's no wool on the legs. Um, and actually a lot of them kind of shut out around the neck. So all the spots that you kind of hate fussing with, there's no wool on, on a border cheviot. So that's my personal, uh, love of the breed. Um, and also, I mean, as with many breeds nowadays, there's a show ring type and then we have a production type, which is a little bit smaller. So for me as a shearer, my personal, like sweet spot, like I like a sheep around that 130 pounds. Um, it's, it's a manageable enough where I can, you know, move them around. I don't have to worry about being physically overpowered by the animal. And they're just at the right height in terms of how they sit against my legs. So these sheep fall within that nice 130. Some of them are creeping up to 150 and some are right around that 100 pounds. But that's like the sweet spot for me. And that's where these fall. They're more production oriented. So by production, you mean that they're mostly for meat? Yeah, they fill out a little bit better. When you add leg and height and you know, size that the show ring likes, it does take a little more input to get them filled out and get them finished out. Not that their customer might prefer a bigger carcass, but it, it just takes a little bit more money to get them there. And we're, right. we're trying to do it all on grass is, is our goal with our farm. And so how are you doing that? All on grass. So, <laughs> so we got really lucky. Actually, the guy that got me started in shearing, the guy that had a hundred sheep initially, um, He's an older gentleman. Like I said, he's a great uncle. He's related. Uh, he no longer runs sheep. And so his farm came available. Uh, he wanted somebody to lease it. So we got the opportunity to lease that. And with that farm came the acreage that we could expand and really do grass farming. I mean, you can't grass farm if you don't have grass. So um, it's a nice chunk of ground. And so we uh, invested in a lot of temporary fence. Um, with the type of grazing we're doing, we're trying to limit the amount of time they're on a specific patch of ground to no more than 48 hours. Like that is, wow. we are militant about that. So we use uh, Premier One temporary nets and solar chargers. And that's the thing about this farm is a lot of the infrastructure is pretty old. Most of the fences are rusted out. And we used them um, that first year, last year when we moved the sheep over there you know, they would push on the fence and they would be out and they'd be like, Oh, so we sent the last No, thank God. It's kind of the, the way that farm sits. There's really no neighbors, but, um, the one neighbor does have like a hunting thing 
next to it. And a bunch of the cows got out right before hunting season. So I oh, called no. them and I said, please let your hunters know that if they see a bull running around, don't shoot him. <laughs> but yeah. we've, uh, we've, we've figured it out and we're getting things cleared out. So it's a little bit easier, but we use just, just temporary netting and we move them around and uh, they're doing pretty good. We're trying to get the pastures back so that they're a bit better in terms of nutritional value for the animals. And that always takes time, but uh, I love it. I love moving them and watching them eat. Like nothing brings me greater joy. (laughs) Do they, uh, do you have to, uh, are you replanting the pastures or just having them eat and having it grow back is enough for the health of the, of the soil? Yeah, we're not replanting anything. Um, We did kind of do some broadcast cover crop type seed in some of the really bad pastures this spring. And, you know, a portion of that did come up and and just sort of added to the nutritional base of it. But that kind of stuff hasn't held on. Like we grazed that this spring and I don't see any of it now here in the fall. Um, But the, the actual hoof impact and the added fertilizer and such from the animals. And if since we're target grazing some of these weeds um, that have kind of taken over, if we hit them at the right time, they're not coming back. Like the one field that we had access to last year, I, we really had a lot less weed pressure this year. And so we're trying to get them out into some of these other fields to try to hit those. And so, I mean, it'll take a few years, but we'll get there. So the, those bad weeds that they're eating them down because they're, you know, nice tender stalks and don't have the, burrs and all that on the top of it is that well kind yeah of? you don't you don't let them get stemmy right and honestly it, it there's a psychology to grazing the way we are and if you only give them enough there is sort of a frenzy they're like if i don't eat this the next guy will so they just they're a lot less selective when you graze this way so they'll just go in and, and hose everything down wow that's cool so yeah it it, it makes it easier to make them eat that kind of stuff and then sort of move them through. So, and how many do you have now? How many head do you have? So our, our main group, we have 150 in the main group. It's about 70 lambs, 70 ewes. Um, and then there's about 10 weathers in that group. We have about, um, 30 some rams and ram lambs in a group with about 30 weather goats. They're all together eating another area and then we have another group with 20-some lambs we just weaned off that were from a – we did kind of a test run of lambing in May this year. And so those 20 lambs are in the barn right now. We're trying to finish them out and get them, get them sold. So uh, it, it's 200-some. <laughs> so that's, that's a lot of fleece, Emily. What are you doing with all that fleece? Oh, the great fleece question. Um, so I have – all the wool from last year and this year. And we shear in December. So we're coming up on getting our next clip very soon. I would really like to get that sent away and have it made into yarn. Um, I did call a couple places. Some of the places I really wanted to send it either were sort of hesitant about accepting it. And so, you know, I didn't want to push the issue. Um, And then, you know, the COVID stuff happened. Huh? Because, of, because of the amount or because of, <laughs> of the... I really, I really wanted to try to keep it local. Okay. I really love Gertie Run. Gertie Run's always been one of my favorite mills. I love the stuff that they make, but it was too much for them. So I told them they could break it down into smaller amounts, and they kind of were like, okay. And then 
Um, they said if I washed it, they might. So there were, there were all these things. I was like, oh, I'm just yeah. going to let it sit. So it's still sitting there. <laughs> Do you know how many pounds it is? It's about 300 pounds. It's, a, it's 150 pounds of white and 150 pounds of black. And we will probably double that this with this next clip because there's obviously more sheep. More so I <laughs> don't know what to well, do. Well, we'll have to talk because I, I, I think I have something that would work for you. Like just the, basically the way I do it is sending it out to a, to a bigger mill to be done yeah. washing and make it into either roving or top and then have the smaller mill do the yarn. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much thinking that maybe sending it to Zeilinger or one of those bigger mills just to get some of the base stuff done might be the best yeah. way to go. So, but there, every time I do the math on how much, and I'm like, oh, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that, is, that is one of the problems. And that's what we've been talking about here on the podcast is farm yarn. And yeah, you know, it's, it, it takes a lot of money to make it so into yarn. Funny. But, and it also, people need to know that like with, if they buy a farm yarn, that they are, then it's, it's kind of like a CSA in a way, like you're really providing the farm with what it needs to keep going. Like it's another product of the farm. And so if you buy farm yarn, that's buying hay. Yes. Or making hay with, with our, our our critters um, or buying more fences for your critters. Yeah. Right. Something like that. So I know you have sheared all over the country. So you've sheared in like in the West, New Mexico. How far West have you gone? So I think New Mexico is the furthest West I've gone. Um, I tend to hang out more in the Midwest. So we hit like Nebraska, Kansas, South Dakota, um, Minnesota. We share a lot in Iowa um, working with some of the guys we've been able to help. Um, that's Missouri. And then pretty much most of the Eastern States I've, I haven't gotten too far into the South. I've done North Carolina. Um, I haven't gotten to Kentucky or Tennessee, but pretty much anything North of there, you know, we've done Ohio, we've done Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, I've shared in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut. I've shared in all those States. Um, yeah, we've, we've, we've had a bunch. I mean, it's so nice. It's such a small community um, of shears. So like once you have acquired sort of a base skill set and, and that normally can be achieved by either one, having a big flock that you can work on and just sort of build your skills or two, you know, helping out a local shear is always a great way to go about it. And then once you have your base skills that you can do, you know, 50 yourself, you can pretty much call anybody in the United States and say, hey, I want to go out. Do you need help at a job? And 99% of shears will be like, yeah, come on. We got this weird job. We got to go do. You're welcome to just sort of do as many as you can. Well, so that's kind of what we've done. Some of those jobs in the Midwest and stuff, didn't, weren't you doing like over, you personally were doing over a hundred a day, right? Like I was averaging about 170. When I was at my peak out there, I was I could do, I could very reliably be counted on to do 170. Now there were several days where I was not quite at 200, which drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, but I've hit 200 in the United States several times. So, wow. and that's hard. That's kind of hard to do. And it is kind of a man's world. How many female shearers are there out there? I know that there are three in our area. You're the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody has their specific skill set. Um, 
there are, it is a growing movement to have more women shearers. And honestly, you do find them more in the coast, um, smaller towns. There's a, there's a bunch up in new England, New York, um, down here in Maryland. We're lucky enough. We have three, you know, there's, there's several in Virginia that are, are just getting going. So, um, and I know of a bunch out in like California, Oregon, Washington that are shearing out there. Um, some of the Midwest, you know, Ohio, Ohio, you know, kind of that area. It's, it's not as common. Um, but honestly, you know, the, the demographic is shifting female farmers. Like you got a lot more of these smaller farms and it's just a slightly different mindset. And I'm not saying that men can't have the mindset to shear, you know, small flocks, but it's, it's just sort of a different skill set. And a lot of the, these people who start their own farms learn how to shear and then go shear for their neighbors. And then that's kind of how it takes off. So it's, it's a growing thing among women and it, that should not stop you from wanting to learn. You just sort of, it, it's not a weight muscle thing. It's a, a balance. So it's, you're, you're, you're counteracting their movement by sort of using leverage. So never assume that just because, you know, you can't bench press 200 pounds that you couldn't shear a sheep. There isn't too many times you have to actually lift it over your head, right? I don't know. There's a couple. <laughs> some of those, some of those male goats. Those ones were the worst. Well, so did you? Did you find when you were shearing that there, with a lot of other, you know, being in a kind of in a man's world, that you were kind of discriminated against, or um, did you, did you have to like use different techniques to become part of the team, or so? <sighs> Yes and no. I don't feel like I ever went to a crew and felt like they were like, you know, you can't do this. Um, there is always that level of, and I don't know whether it's right or wrong to be annoyed by it, but they're like, here, let me catch you a sheep. And I'm like, you didn't catch it for Joe down the, the <laughs> line. Like, you don't need to do that for me. And there, and especially in the Midwest where it's still more of this, you know, chivalry type of thing, you know you'll have the farmer just stand at your board helping you. And I'm like, go help Alex. He needs help. Like, even though he's a big boy, he still needs help. Like, go help him. So there, there's a lot of hovering, which if, if you're a shearer to begin with, there's, there's a sort of sense of pride and can do. And, you know, I, I'm going to be able to do it myself. And it, it does kind of rub you the wrong way. It gets annoying. It's like, I don't need to be babysat. Like, take a step away. I got it. I wouldn't be doing it if I couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of that, you know, and, you know, and when you're at contests there in the early days when it was pretty much all men and there was only two girls there, there at the, when I was started going to contests, you know, 10 or so years ago. And if you beat a guy, there was a little bit of, you know, dirt kicking. And it was like, come on, like, really? <laughs> Did they think that you cheated or something? No, no, not that. The guy was having a bad day. Well, you know, it's just that girl. When I was in New Zealand, and I I was in New Zealand 2012, and the crew I was on, I I was I never actually out tallied any of the guys on the crew. Like they were they were really good, but there was one guy I was getting really close to, and the last day I was there, I almost got him. And then I I remember hearing him say, "I'm just so glad she never beat me." Like (laughs) that was so important. Going home. (laughs) Do you, so, do you, yeah. 
Do you find any difference between like when you're going to small farms between, you know, a farm that's owned by a, a woman and one that's owned by a man and how they interact with you during shearing? Or is it mostly it, that's gone because everybody just respects you because they most, most people respect the size of the farm does kind of set the tone for, for like, you'll have the pet people with like three there's a certain, you know, mentality behind that. And they're, they're always trying to be really helpful because they're always, they're a little bit nervous because they, they haven't had enough animals to really figure out what's normal and what's, you know, abnormal. So they assume everything is abnormal. So there's right. kind of that. Um, you, your mid, mid-level mid flocks, you know, your 10 to 30 type, you know, there's a certain mentality with that. And when you get big flocks, those guys don't care. Like, they're just like, get them done. Yeah. <laughs> This just needs they, to be kicked off the list. Yeah, they do. Those big flocks, you usually have the guy hovering when you're doing the ram, and uh, and and so then I'm like, if you're if you think your animals are too big for me to handle, are they too big for anybody to handle? Like, why do you have big sheep? But they really like you'll get people that will be like, well, I did the ram because I just didn't want you to have to do it, and it's like, why would you say that to me? Because now you've like. You poked the bear. Like I should be able to do that animal, just like I could do all the rest. You're paying me to do the rest, so there's a lot of that. It has to do with size, and not that they don't want you to like wreck their, you know, the the reproduction. I don't know. They they feel better announcing that. Like I just would rather know that they're not. I don't need to do them. Like you don't have to make make it well known that uh, we we're not making you do the big one. Or it's just like whatever. <laughs> We made you do all the big ones. I remember. I remember there were times with when we had some of the the bucks that had the really big, huge horns. horns. Would stand on their horns while you were doing it just to keep right. it down. Yeah. yeah, you'll be like twisting the horn around, and then it would like come up at you, and you're like, ah, get away from me! Yeah, yeah. Hopefully we don't have any of those. Well, we just have that one cashmere now that you know looks like a male, but really isn't a male yeah deal with her so i know that i know that you are also being a wool broker what is that about how did you get that gig so i'm a member of the maryland sheep breeders association it's our sort of local state association and i when i when i joined um we, we had, we had a wool pool and it had been run by the same guy for years, like easily 20, 25 years. He'd been in there a long time. Fabulous, fabulous job. Like he just knew everybody and knew how to do it. And it was smooth, but I, I think he was coming to the end and he kept threatening. He's like, somebody else has got to take this over. Um, so. And of course there I, was somebody else that would take it over. Nobody wants to do that kind of stuff. I mean, even today, nobody wants to do that kind of stuff. So, but I being, in the thick of wool with the shearing aspect, I was like, well, this might as well just do this as well. I mean, it's, it sort of ties together. So I took over the Maryland wool pool and I was, oh, it was rough. Um, yes, it was. I was there. It, it was, was rough. It was those first, how many years did you do it before it just kind of collapsed? Like, three? I, I, well, so I won't say it collapsed. We, so I was in charge of it for three years and every year I would, it wasn't that you made it collapse, it's just more the wool prices, but the the wool prices so I took it over kind of as the wool started its slippery slide to where it is today. And 
Um, it, and, and a lot of the, the older volunteers that helped with that were also ready to kind of step back. So we lost a lot of our key, you know, knowledgeable, you know, workers, uh, when he stepped down, but I have a lot of people who I called in favors and they stepped up and helped me out. And so I am eternally grateful for everybody who, who came out and helped with that. Um, but at the end of the first year, I mean, it was very obvious in terms of how much will we brought in. I mean, we, we kept our numbers up in terms of quantity, which was fantastic, but wool prices were starting to slip. Um, some of the equipment we had was getting older and it was like, well, do we, like, it really doesn't make sense to replace this stuff, but it's not safe to use it in some of these, these things. So, I mean, there were all these questions kind of circling around. Um, the next year, wool prices slipped again. The year after that, wool prices slipped again. And we were really losing volunteers and people stopped bringing wool. And so um, it, it was just, and, and the other issue with the pool is that you normally contract with one buyer and they come in and buy the entire thing. That's why it's called a pool. Um, right. And after having talked to a lot of people, you know, in the Midwest and in other areas, you know, if we could have split the load, like there were certain wool in, in there that may have been more valuable to this buyer. Um, and some of the wool would have been more valuable to another buyer. Um, so it was just, we weren't able to do that cause it just wasn't enough quantity. So, um, we, we finally just had to step back and go, this, this probably isn't going to work long-term. So I stepped down and I said, if somebody else wants to run it, you're welcome to run it. Um, and, but nobody stepped up at that point. So they liquidated the equipment, they sold the equipment. Um, and I started buying privately, which allowed me to do that, that same thing is split the loads, say, you know, this person values this type of wool, this person values this type of wool, all the junk wool will go, um, to one buyer. So that's what we have been doing since then. And we've been doing that for a few years. Um, we have minimal success. People have seen slightly higher prices based on commercial prices, but it's, um, it's just a really, really bad time for commercial wool. And this year prices were 10 cents a pound pretty much across the board. It was bad. But so the funny thing is I just read an article for the Maryland sheep readers and I wrote about how we, it can't get any worse, but I'll, I'll tell you, I just got a price list. Our wool is worth two cents a pound now. Oh my gosh. So it's, so doesn't it, it's probably it, in some cases on some of these small farms, it doesn't even pay to have the animal sheared. I mean, they, it's just no. really for the health of the animal and yes. the animal. That's right t- now, if, if you aren't sort of managing for cleanliness of the wool, and that's what I continue to hit home, you know, there are people that are looking for Suffolk wool and Dorset wool, which tends to be that throwaway stuff. Um, but they want it clean. They want it clean. So if you're not managing for clean wool and and by clean, I mean, you know, eliminate as much of the VM as possible and try to keep, you know, dirt and wood chips and stuff out of it. You know, 90% of your contamination happens in the day before shearing. You know, you put them in a pen, you throw a bale of straw down and that straw just doesn't have time to work out of the wool. Um, that other 10% happens by feeding hay inappropriately. So if you can manage those two issues, you know, keeping them clean prior to shearing and trying to feed your hay lower so that the VM doesn't fall down like snow. I mean, you could potentially be able to, you know, at 10 cents a pound, you could sell it for 75 cents a pound and like triple your money. And there's usually somebody there who'd, who'd be willing to buy it. But you know, right now it's a byproduct unless you're, 
have a, a, a short plan, a little plan to sort of mitigate some of those issues. Well, I think you've done a real service to people too, because you've been able to, um, to pull out some of those fleeces that are worth more, like that Rambouillet that we got at the Pennsylvania Whirlpool and, you know, various things where you can pull them out and say, oh, I know I can get you, you know, at least a dollar a pound or maybe $5 a pound or whatever for the, yeah. for these fleeces. And that's been really helpful to those, to those producers. Yeah, there, there's more than a few of people like you who produce their own fiber, but to really fill a booth or to fill a storefront or however you want to do it, there needs to be sort of supplemental something, you know, either something similar to what you're already having in your store or if you wanted to do something, you know, some people are doing breed specific yarns and right. that's kind of really taken off right now. So being able to sort those wools and saying, all right, I have somebody who mentioned maybe they want, you know, border lester yarn or something like that. So you're making sure to kind of keep that in a little pile to itself and trying to market that has, has proven to be sort of where the industry is going right now. And we spend a lot of time doing that. Especially over here on this, on this side of the world, because we don't have those, those big, you know, mono uh, culture <laughs> farms where they have, you know, a thousand head of merinos or rambolets or, you know, something like that, that, you know, where you have one kind of fleece and you have a gigantic amount of it. I mean, we have, you know, like a hundred breeds or something over here and they're all different. So you guys, you do have to know what you're dealing with and what kind of thing that you want. Yeah. And as, as a, a store a yarn producer, I mean, you got to know people and you just got to talk to a lot of people and that's, I'm already doing that. So might as well just, you know, tap into some of those connections and talk to people and sort of find out what people want and try to connect those dots as often as possible. Exactly. Um, I wanted to ask you, so if you, how, what advice would you give to somebody who is just getting into the, the field? Maybe they are, just want to have a couple of pets. What would you, what advice? I know you helped us a lot. You know, Bill and I were just totally city people. We started out with these two little goats and, you know, you've helped us a lot with, you know, how to set things up. You know, you chastised us for, you know, not bringing them in when they were the the day before and we had to chase them all over the fields. I mean, we've learned a lot from you. So what would you tell people for the best health and the best fleeces? Well, it's, it's very easy to get caught up in, I've done my research online. Um, the best thing you can do is find somebody local to you who is raising animals the way you want to raise animals. And start out there. It doesn't matter what breed they're raising, but just ask them the basic questions. Um, honestly, starting out with good genetic stock, and by saying good genetic stock, again, buy from somebody who's raising the animals the way you want to raise the animals. It's, it's all well and good to go to a show and say, oh, I bought the grand champion, whatever. But make sure you know how that animal was raised because a lot of those show sheep are being you know, raised in a pen with high input. So if your goal is to have them out on an acre of field, it's going to be quite a jump for that animal. And you, you will have sort of a learning curve there trying to figure out how to keep an animal that is, you know, mostly, you know, used to eating high concentrate diets to suddenly just throwing them out and only giving them grass. Like that's going to be rough. So find somebody who's doing what you want to do and then ask those questions. Um, 
The other thing is don't fall for all the breed association marketing spam. Every breed thinks that their breed is best and can do meat, milk, and wool. Every breed thinks they can do meat, milk, and wool. That's the one thing that drives me crazy. Figure out what it is specifically, the one thing. Like if you were going to have one marketing tagline, like what is the most important thing to you? Is it wool? Focus on that. Find a wool you love. And by that, I mean go to a festival, touch all the wools, find a wool that you actually like. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people getting into like Icelandics right now and Baby Doll South Downs and some Scotland. of these other breeds. Scotland. Yeah, they're super, super popular, which as they should be, they're lovely breeds. But, you know, people buy them and go, oh, I'm going to be selling wool. And I'm the first person to say Baby Doll South Down wool is not long enough to really process. You can, you can get a few fleeces out of them. And then you get a lot of people that are disappointed because they bought a breed because the breed association says that they're great for milk, wool, and meat. And most of the time you're not going to eat them because they're too cute. The wool doesn't get long enough. And I want to watch you milk that animal because these nipples are tiny. So, I mean, just things to keep in mind. If There again, if you want to raise Icelandics for milk, buy somebody who is actually milking their Icelandics. And then you'll see the proof in the pudding. If you're buying baby doll south downs for wool, buy from somebody who actually has a yarn line with baby doll south down wool. And then you'll know it's possible because a lot of times you just are not finding the proof. And uh, there's nuance to some of these breeds and it does tend to be regional. So there again, my skill set is very much attuned to this East Coast sort of environment. We kind of know what breeds thrive and some of these breeds have specific needs. So talking to local people, don't just throw it up on Facebook and go, what's the best breed? Right. Because you'll get every, every answer and, and some breeds may not thrive in your area. Um, and there again, you know, some of those breeds that are more susceptible to parasites, you know, if you do want to have that breed here in the East Coast, you know, find somebody who is already succeeding with that breed. And you got to ask the dirty questions, you know, what's your lamb loss? How often are you worming? You know, are you forced are you to provide? What are you worming with? Yeah. What are you worming with? Are you cocktailing worming? Like, cause that's usually a bad sign. Um, I mean, there's just some red flags and as a new sheep person, you might not be aware of those, those red flags, but talk to people who don't have the breed you want. Ask them why they have that breed and ask them why they may not buy the breed you're looking at. You'll get a lot of insight sort of going around the corner, um, to a lot of that stuff, you know, and talk to your shearers cause we, we have seen all the breeds in a specific area and we normally have opinions on that. So that's true. <laughs> so, just start, so I know when we just started out, we had one of those little Amish uh, bar, you know, play, play house barns. Right. And we yep. had, and we had a fence. Is there anything else that people like really have to have to start? So I'll be honest, especially with, in regards to my job, there you have to have an ability to get the animals contained. So your Amish shed was actually really nice because the goats would go into it and the door would shut. A lot of times after about one year, the door no longer shuts. And so then you have a situation where you have an owner that says, well, we have these two goats and they're in a contained area, but we're going to have to chase them around the area to try to get them in. And the worst, the other worst part is that the shed is either smack dab in the middle of the field. So there's no corners to really like contain them. 
Um, so that is frequently a problem. So I highly, highly recommend, and you can use cattle panels. Cattle panels are not ideal because typically where a cattle panel gets tied down is typically where it stays. But I mean, they still are modular to an extent. If you can get a hold of actual sheet panels to some degree, um, they are modular and they are worth their weight in gold because you can move them around. You can make sort of funnels. You can make a smaller pen. You can set them across the front of your barn. If your barn door is no longer shut and use them as a barn door. Um, you know, when you actually need to handle your animals and it is hard trimming feet, it's hard, you know, giving warmer, you know, people struggle trying to get them tipped over, but if you can get them in a tiny area where they are shoulder to shoulder and they can't really run at you and they can't really like barrel you down, it's a lot easier to give warmer and check eyes, you know, if they are kind of held in a compact area. So having panels of some sort, gates of some sort, you know, it is a little extra money, but it pays for itself enormously by saving you all that extra work. Because if you aren't doing that, we do, we do feet about once a month, maybe once every six weeks. And we have, you know, if you don't, if you let that go on, it's, it's bad for the animal. And, um, and yeah, you just don't want to have not to be touching your animals at least that much. Yeah. You, you will need to be able to confine your animals. And, and when I say confine, we're talking about nothing larger than a horse stall. Horse stalls are fairly manageable. Like you can sort of reach out and right. corner them. Um, horse stall or smaller. You need to provide some sort of space that's a horse stall or smaller so you can get your hands on the animals. Um, and if you don't have that, then you need to buy enough panels to create some space that is a horse stall or smaller. Yeah. And ideally, especially you know if you only have a few if you have five sheep you want to be able to put them in a little tiny pen so you can handle them and and that that doesn't really require you know too much work there's little rods drop in great boom you got a little pen there it's like yeah you just have to get them in now (laughs) put the food in there so they'll come in yeah you can a lot of times if you're feeding them out against a fence anyway get enough to make like a half circle around the feeding area and just sort of leave it open for a few days and they won't even think twice they'll come in shut the gate boom instant corral why did that happen (laughs) why did i do that so what i'm asking everybody is um what's happening on your farm today did you have to move people today we move the we move the sheep every morning right now we're on 24-hour moves so we went out and we set up all the fence and we shift because the grass right now we're in that weird fall transition. And so we do have a lot of weeds. A lot of that stuff is kind of coming to maturity. And so um, we're just trying to flash them through areas. We're not forcing them to eat everything down to the ground. There's just no, no need for it. We're also breeding. So the Rams were active this morning. We saw a few get bred. Um, yeah. So we, we took care of the, all that. And now we're, we wait and then we, we move the goats in the afternoon. So that'll be our afternoon move. Awesome. Complete the statement. Fiber farming is. It's extremely challenging, but it is very rewarding. It's, it's one of the hardest things you're ever going to do. And there is an enormous learning curve and there's a lot of, you know, heartbreak animals die over nothing. You know, you bring an animal in and it makes all your animals sick. Yeah. You know, you get one that, you know, is your best you, you know, and she gets a wool break and her beautiful fiber falls out and you're like, 
What did I do? You know, you spend so much time trying to get everything perfect and they'll figure out a way to screw it up. But then at the end of the day, you know, you move them into a new field and you watch them eat and you're like, I think this is, this is genetic. Like watching the animals eat. And yes. Yes. Music playing somewhere. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) What's your favorite binge watch right now? So I I do. I do. And we don't really have TV. I do do Amazon Prime, but I don't have internet at all. So I just download one season. I just watch it over and over and over again, which is ridiculous. It drives my husband crazy. Um, I'm big on Bones right now. I'm, I figured out that there was the last season of Vikings just came out. So I've been watching that. Really like that. Uh, Modern Family. I don't know the usual ones. Yeah. But I love murder mysteries. That's kind of my thing. Yeah, those are always fun. And do you have a favorite meal? I, meat. I love lamb. Lamb. I if I could eat lamb every day, I would eat lamb. And by lamb, I do mean mutton. We we butcher a lot of ours at a year older, and I would eat that all day long. Yeah, we do. We have done that too. So when you so do you usually roast it, stew it? What do you like to do with it? I'm a big crock pot person. I'm not a fancy cook. Um, we will crock pot the larger cuts and then grill like chops and some of those smaller smaller cuts. But yeah, it's just. If you cook it low and slow all day long, uh, it is it's amazing. It's really good. I'll, yeah. have to, I'll have to make some of my famous um, mint sauce that we do. For oh, really? When you do the roast or the grilled chops. Yeah. It's my, my father's recipe. Yeah. I've had some pretty fantastic goat, too, here in the last couple of years. Goat is amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really good. And especially if you're going to use goat, um, putting in a little bit of vinegar into the meat uh, takes away that gaminess. We oh, just really? figured that out. I saw it on a cooking program and it's like, oh, I'm going to try there that. You go. <laughs> I made like a, a shepherd's pie with some ground goat that we had. And I just put just a, maybe like a tablespoon of vinegar in there. Uh-huh. Like it made it so much better. Oh, wow. Here's your tip for the day. And then yeah. how, how do people find you? If they want to um, get your, your services or they have wool that they want you to buy or how do they find you? What's the best way? So I am on Facebook, Emily Chamberlain Hickman on Facebook. Um, I am on Instagram. That's where I post all of my like farm pictures. And if you want to see lots and lots of videos of sheep grazing, that's where you They're, cute. Use, They're really cute. You should watch them. <laughs> so and and that is sheer grazing is my uh instagram handle um and i do have websites so the the farm website is airyfarmeast.com um and my shearing website is chamberlainshearing.org so um both of those websites will have all my uh if you want to don't call I, I don't answer my phone as <laughs> yeah uh but Email, text, like if you have wool you're trying to um, get sold, I'm always happy to exchange ideas. Um, you know, there, there's certain information is nuanced, so it is, you know, case by case. Um, if you have sheep that need sheared and you, you're having trouble finding somebody, I usually know somebody. Um, so we like to help people out that way. Awesome. Um, and if you're in, if you're interested in the regenerative grazing stuff that we're really doing a lot of, you know, I, I love chatting about that. So you're, you're always welcome to, to reach out. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining me today. You're one of the strongest people that I know. <laughs>
Really, not just in body and mind and spirit. So I really think, <laughs> so I thank you for sharing your, your knowledge with us. And um, it's been great. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. <laughs> well, that's this episode of the Flying Goat Farm podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a review. Have a question you'd like me to answer? Send an email to goatherd at flyinggoatfarm.com. And to see our farm and yarn and roving, check out our website at flyinggoatfarm.com. Follow me at Flying Goat Farm on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm Goat Herd on Ravelry. Until next time, happy making. <laughs>